Hello, this is Mike, and welcome to Season 3 of Urban Legends and Mythologies. Before I dive into the subject at hand, I would like to thank all the listeners and supporters who have helped get this show to this point. It is because of your support that I am able to continue to make these, and will be able to continue making these for the foreseeable future. Two more additional things to add to that. One, I am temporarily not taking any requests for future episodes. I have received enough episode requests to fill every slot for this season, season 4, and season 5. That is over 75 weeks worth of material. However, if you are a supporter, and more importantly, to be honest, a donator, and you want me to discuss a specific topic, reach out to me and I might do a special bonus episode or whatever. Secondly, I just want to reiterate my thanks for all of the support so far. You listeners and your curiosity about these subjects really are what drives this show, and any added support that you may bring in will be greatly appreciated. So, as always, like it, share it, give me some feedback, go check out the Instagram page, that's up and running now. Any other support is greatly appreciated. With that being said, let's get into the topic at hand. Today we are discussing one of the most infamous hauntings in American history, the haunting of the Bell Witch. So, like always, let's have a nice cold beer and start at the beginning. So our story starts in 1817. Along the Red River, near a town called Adams in Robinson County, Tennessee. So John Bell, he was a prosperous tobacco farmer in North Carolina. All of a sudden he picks up and he moves to this area in Tennessee along with some of the initial settlers. He has a thousand acre farm in which they grow tobacco and other crops. Now, not much is really known about John up to this point. We know at one point he was a barrel maker's apprentice, but he decided to try his hand at farming. He got married in North Carolina, had several kids. At some point, he decides to pack up, sell his plantation, and move to the backcountry in Tennessee, essentially to basically start over with a new plantation and a growing family in a new community. He was a popular man. He was a very matter-of-fact person. He looked you dead in the eye when he spoke to you, and he wasn't known for joking or being jovial or anything like that. He was a very matter-of-fact person. It was also suggested that he was a very shrewd and matter-of-fact businessman. This was why he was so prosperous and that he may have gotten into some kind of legal trouble in North Carolina which prompted the move. We just don't know. We do know that he was a member of what would become the Red River Baptist Church, and he was actually excommunicated from that church for usury. Usury is an archaic term for loan sharking, which for those of you who don't know what that is, that means that he's giving out a high-risk loan with a very high interest rate, which is generally frowned upon in the Christian religion. 
However, his family are amongst some of the earliest settlers in this area. They literally help build the city of Adams, and they are regarded as a very popular and well-liked family in the area. So it all begins on a day in 1817. John Bell, he's out in his fields, and he notices a strange-looking animal. It resembles a dog, but it's very distorted. The angles of the joints are wrong, and it's much larger than your average dog. It's almost bear size, and it was said to have a head that almost resembles a rabbit. So John Bell takes out his rifle, and he fires at this strange creature. However, he misses. The creature disappears. John searches the surrounding immediate area. He finds no sign of the creature, nor does he even find any tracks left behind by the creature. So naturally, being a matter-of-fact kind of guy, he just plays it off. He says, wow, that was just a strange encounter, and he goes about his day. However, this dog would make other appearances. One account comes from a man named Dean, who was one of John Bell's slaves. While he was visiting his wife and walking on a trail, possibly a wife that was on another plantation because southern slavery, he said that he had been followed by a large black dog on various evenings that would disappear when he would confront it. It was said that shortly after this, John Bell's daughter Betsy saw the apparition of a girl in a green dress swinging from an oak tree. However, when she tried to interact with this girl, she disappeared. It was then very quickly after these initial events when things would escalate. One night, around midnight, early morning, while they were asleep in their beds, they awoke to the sound of banging on the walls, on the doors, on the windows, all around the house, just banging and knocking. So they naturally assume that it's a person or a group of people, so they get up, they go outside, they find nothing. They search the grounds, they search the whole house, top to bottom, they find nothing. And more curiously, they don't find any tracks leading either to the house or from the house. So initially, they discount it. They think it might have been somebody playing a joke or a prank. However, it happens again, and again, and again, every single night. Now, initially, they don't tell anybody about it because John believes that it might be somebody who is messing with him, who is out to get him, and he wants to catch him in the act, and he doesn't want to tell anybody in town because that might tip off this person who's maliciously coming to his house in the middle of the night and banging on his walls for whatever reason. However, this is just the beginning, it's going to escalate a lot from here. So one night, while the boys are upstairs in their bedrooms, they're asleep in their bunk beds. The older boys are on the lower bunks, and the younger boys are on the upper bunk. And they awake in the middle of the night because they're hearing this gnawing sound on the frames of their bunks and they think that it might be mice. So the older boys, they get out of their bunks to look for these mice and as soon as their feet touch the floor, the gnawing sound stops. 
And this phenomena repeats over and over again for many, many nights. Every time the boys get out of bed, as soon as their feet touch the floor, it disappears, the sound stops, and they never find these alleged mice. But it doesn't stop escalating because at the same time we're still hearing these banging noises on the doors, and there are sounds of like chains being dragged across the floors, or sounds of dogs fighting, and it's just getting worse and worse. But one night while the boys are trying to sleep in their bunks, they hear a sound they never heard before, it sounds like the dying gasps of a man struggling to catch his breath and it is clawing at the underside of their bunks. And at this point, John Bell, he reaches his breaking point and he confides in a neighbor that there's something strange going on at his plantation. So John invites this neighbor over to spend the night and the neighbor... He, that he doesn't even last the night. He leaves in the middle of the night and he is convinced that there is something demonic or crazy going on at this plantation. And then quickly word starts to spread in this small community about a haunting or a witch or a spirit or a demonic entity at the Bell home. And while word of this is spreading, it continues to escalate, particularly focusing on John Bell and his daughter Betsy. With Betsy in particular, the entity loves to slap her, punch her, kick her, stick needles, stick pins in her. It's very torturous towards this daughter, while at the meantime, with the other siblings, it's pulling sheets off of them in the middle of the night creating these demonic sounding sounds and with his wife and other people the entity even starts to speak to them and the speaking wasn't just disembodied voices this entity was sentient it was said to have full long drawn out conversations gossip and debates with whoever was interacting with it at the time. In fact, a very early instance in which a traveler or possibly somebody in the home asked, what are you and what are you doing here? The entity replied, I am a spirit. I was once very happy, but have been disturbed. The spirit would go on to offer diverse explanations of where it had come from. At one point, it stated that it was millions of years old. The entity would go on to state that the reason it began to appear to the Bell family was due to a disturbance of a Native American burial mound, which was on the property. Most likely a burial mound that the Bells either leveled for plowing or for building a structure or dug into with no regard for the significance of a burial mound in the Native American culture in that area. We have to remember that these are early 19th century white southern Christian slaveholders who have colonized this new land and who probably would have seen a Native American burial mound as just an obstacle to plow through. However, with the emergence of full-on conversations, we would learn a lot more about the entity. For one, it was very well versed in the Bible. 
the Christian Bible. And it would have full-on discussions, conversations, debates, and religious arguments with whoever would engage it. It had also at one time repeated two different sermons which were given in two different churches at the same time, 13 miles apart, word for word. And this was verified by the people in those churches who had heard those sermons. It was said that the entity would also gossip about neighbors. It took great enjoyment in this. And it would even display a form of kindness towards Lucy, John Bell's wife, once describing her as the most perfect woman to ever walk the earth. She would sing hymns to John's wife, and it was said that she would even bring her fresh fruit. The entity also seemed to take a liking to John Bell Jr. It was said that it would show him a great deal of respect. This led a lot of people in the community to think that this spirit was divine in some way, and many people from the community would come to converse with the spirit. However, this kindness only masked the malevolent intentions behind the entity, for this entity had a dark side and a deep, seething hatred towards John Bell. So the whole time this phenomena is going on, the entity is going out of its way to absolutely torture John Bell Sr. to death. And John Bell would spend the remaining three years of his life being tortured by this entity. It is not known why the entity had this grudge against John, who she also referred to as Old Jack. However, there have been hypotheses that this entity maybe had some kind of grudge against John Bell Sr., or the entity knew of maybe some dark secret of John's which she was torturing him with. So this torture really begins with a continuous banging that would happen every night, all night, which was intentional to keep John awake and tired. The entity would keep John sleep deprived and wear him down mentally. The entity would curse him, hex him, and physically abuse him. It was said that after this torture escalated that the entity probably even entered John because he would go blank, his face would go blank during conversation, and he would spend hours sometimes just on the edge of his bed just staring into nothingness. And the whole time the entity is boasting about how it's going to kill John. And then it happens... On December 9th, 1820, John is in bed. He's just laying there unconscious after a bout of violent seizures. So one of the family members rushes to the medicine cabinet, and it's been emptied out. The only thing in the cabinet at this time is a mysterious bottle. It's not labeled, and it contains a black liquid that no one in the family has ever seen before. They then get in touch with a local physician 
who tells them to test out the liquid on one of the local animals. So they find a stray cat and they force feed this liquid to this cat. The cat dies a few minutes later of these violent seizures. And at this point, they know that John has been poisoned and he will be dead very soon. And it is said that as he lay there dying and as he took his last breath, they could hear the entity, the infamous witch, filling the room with raucous laughter and screaming, I did it. I fixed him. And even over the next few days, as they were mourning the loss of their patriarch and organizing his funeral, it is said that the entity would disrupt it by singing body-drinking songs in raucous celebration. However, the story does not end with the death of John Bell, because it was shortly after this when the entity would turn her focus towards the daughter Betsy, and the entity would continue her habits, biting, scratching, pinching, cursing, and claiming that it would not leave until Betsy called off her engagement to a boy named Joshua Gardner, to which she finally did in 1821. At that point, the entity stated that it would leave, however, it would return in seven years, and for seven years, this activity ceased in the Bell House. However, the entity was true to its word because in 1828, the entity reappeared in the Bell household and it starts all over again, this time with Lucy and her two sons, Richard and Joel, who are still living on the plantation in this same house. However, this time around, they take a different approach. They decide to ignore the entity. They choose not to engage with it. And subsequently, the entity, possibly out of boredom, just disappears again. However, it is said that in subsequent generations that the witch will appear on the property if you go looking for her. That even though the house is gone and the property has been reclaimed, the entity never truly left. And in a lot of the modern urban legends that surround this story, it is said that the entity now resides inside a cave, a natural cave that was on the property. And that cave can still be visited to this day, I believe with the landowner's permission, of course. And it is said that strange events still happen on that land and in that cave. But what was the Bell Witch? What was this entity, this spirit that resides on this property. There have been many hypotheses suggested over the years, but we truly do not know what is truth and what is fiction. The records are clear from the time. However, as time has gone on and works have been published regarding the infamous haunting of the Bell Witch, other stories have become attributed to this legend and has made it 
far more detailed than what I went into here. I just barely scratched the surface of all the stories associated with the Bell Witch. So the first and most obvious hypothesis is that this is a malevolent spirit or some kind of demon or maybe it's the spirit of a Native American with a grudge or a spirit or entity which may have been aware of maybe some kind of shady business dealings that the Bells were engaged in. Remember, she was excommunicated from that Baptist church for usury. And while there's no evidence that the Bells were cruel to their slaves, maybe they were cruel to their slaves and the entity took offense to that. Maybe the spirit was disturbed with the leveling or destruction of that burial mound and never forgave John Bell for that. It could be any possibility or circumstance like that. We just don't know. And that's the thing. Entities, spirits, demons, apparitions, poltergeists, whatever you want to call it, it's so prevalent in our culture as humans you know ghost stories are in every single culture so even without any real scientific conclusive evidence i think generally most people can agree that strange entities like that may exist and who knows they may be sentient and they may interact with humans in this manner we just don't have the scientific means to prove it that's one possible explanation for the Bell Witch. And to be honest, people can argue back and forth all day for the rest of their lives whether or not something like that exists. But I think in our cultural mindset as humans, we may not have evidence for it, but on some level we know that it exists. Another possible hypothesis was that this was all done and imposed and created by a neighbor of the Bells named Kate Batts. Now the entity at several times would refer to herself as Kate, and Kate Batts was known to the Bells, and it was generally believed that the Bells may have cheated her out of some land or money when they moved into the area. And this is as old as time, you do not become prosperous in whatever field you're in without screwing over a couple of people. That's literally how people get rich. You gotta screw over people. Now, Kate Batts was a neighbor of the Bells, and there was this rumor going around. And to add another layer to it, Kate Batts was a very eccentric person. She was this type of woman who a lot of the townspeople were put off by. Part of that is because she had this tendency to use really big words and sentences to, I guess, sound more intelligent or more important. However, she didn't always understand the meaning of the words she was saying. So a lot of the times her sentences would be weird or intelligible to whoever she was speaking with. It's believed that she had other quirks like that too, and it did kind of put off some of the members of the local community. And this kind of idea of a witch in the community kind of springs up around her. However, it was widely stated 
that when she was confronted about this, when she was basically accused of this, she was shocked and horrified at the accusation. She denied it vehemently. She couldn't believe that even though they had may had some kind of bickering in the past, that they would think that she would be capable of doing something so horrible. However, I think that's where the name Kate, that the entity used as its name, enters the folklore. It was this rumor going around that maybe the Bells had some shady business dealings and ripped her off and she was kind of getting her revenge. However, none of that was ever proven to be true. And furthermore, it's also believed that this was all a hoax perpetuated by either the entire Bell family or just certain members of the Bell family. A lot of people, even to this day, attribute it to ventriloquism. And even back then in the 1820s, when this accounts were coming out and all through the rest of the 1800s, a lot of people suspected it was simple ventriloquism. And for those who aren't familiar with ventriloquism, that term, basically it's the art of throwing your voice as if to make it sound like it's coming from somewhere else. It's a parlor trick and a lot of magicians use it and ventriloquists use it in their shows with their dummies. And there are actual written accounts in diaries and letters which state that this was ventriloquism, that it was most likely one of the daughters doing this, and that the rest of the bells were just going along with it and embellishing the story, maybe to raise some clout in the local community, or maybe some of the family members themselves participated in this as a conspiracy to kill John Bell Sr. Because at the time, John Bell Sr. was in his late 60s, his children were adults, and he possessed over a thousand acres of land with slaves, with tobacco, plus whatever interests and dealings or holdings he might have still had back in North Carolina. Let's not forget, he didn't even move to this area until he was in his 30s. So maybe some of the members of his family saw this as a convenient way to possibly torture or bump off this old man, ultimately poisoning them while covering their tracks so maybe they can inherit some of that wealth for themselves. I mean, at the end of the day, he was poisoned and his wealth went to his children. And what's a more convenient cover story than an insidious entity did it? And here's the evidence for that that goes back three years. And given the old man's declining health, it was believed that he possibly contracted some kind of neurological disorder, which was bringing on these seizures and these blackouts and stuff. And given that medical knowledge was very primitive in the early 19th century, dosing the food or drink during this illness might have been their golden opportunity. 
Now, that one is kind of a fringe hypothesis that his own family murdered him in order to gain his inheritance, but it's not completely outside the realm of possibility, especially when you've been sitting on the sidelines waiting for your inheritance for so long. We've seen it throughout history. But to be perfectly blunt and honest, I personally don't believe that any of these hypotheses hold up completely by themselves. I believe that each hypothesis holds a tidbit or a seed of the overall story and these tidbits and seeds grow off into their own hypotheses. I think it's an overall combination of all of these possibilities and it's a more simplified stripped down version of all of the other stories which get associated with this myth. Now I usually don't do this but here's how I think the real story played out. So in the late 1700s John Bell would be in his 30s and he already has a successful tobacco plantation in North Carolina. Now in 1782, at the age of 32, he marries Lucy Williams. She's 12 years old at this time, and they settle on this farm that he has bought, and it's said that they prosper over the next eight years, becoming one of the area's most successful farmers. Now, given that this is North Carolina in the late 18th century, he's most likely growing tobacco. It's most likely a tobacco plantation. That was still the cash crop at the time. And obviously on this plantation, he would have slaves and he would amass wealth from their labor. This is probably where he gets in trouble with his church that he's a part of and gets excommunicated from this church for usury. Well, as we discussed before, usury is just an archaic term for loan sharking, which is frowned upon in that religion. And one thing about tobacco production is it's really hard on the soil. It really takes a lot of nutrients out of the soil, which is why you have to rotate crops every year. And by 1804, even with crop rotation, he probably wasn't getting as good yield out of this tobacco that he was getting in previous years. That could have been another reason why he prompted to move west. However, I personally think that it was a combination of that and his little loan sharking scheme that got him excommunicated that prompted to move. Maybe Maybe that was exposed and it took a hit to his reputation and he wanted to go somewhere else where he could reestablish himself. So in the winter of 1804 through 1805, Bell, his wife, his six children, and his slaves, they make the journey through North Carolina into East Tennessee to an area called the Red River, which is where they establish their new plantation. So they're in this new community and they become prominent leading figures in this community because, hey, they're rich and this new community's just scraping it out and he's buying up all this land. And he has this reputation as a shrewd, matter-of-fact businessman. And it's 
probably in those coming years after this where maybe a land deal is made between himself and his neighbor and maybe he does cheat her out of some money or some land. It's a rumor that has persisted for 200 years. A rumor that pers persisted for that long is probably has some grain of truth to it. And maybe the knocking sounds were actually real. Maybe they were coming from people who he had cheated in the past who were out for some kind of revenge. And let's remember when this stuff first started, John Bell, he thought it was somebody playing a prank or getting some kind of revenge on him and he wanted to catch them in the act. So maybe he spread this idea of a ghost story around to kind of deter some of that from happening, but maybe that just exacerbated things. And given how superstitious people were back then about this stuff, they would have easily believed it. And then maybe his wife and his daughter go along with the story and they start maybe telling some tall tales about all the spooky stuff that's going on on their land. And maybe the ventriloquism idea comes into play because it was largely believed that Betsy had this ability to throw her voice. And that comes from contemporary accounts and letters. However, it was never proven. It was always suggested. And then later down the line, John Sr. becomes afflicted with this alleged neurological disorder, which at times had paralyzed his mouth, put him in these states where he was just kind of staring at the wall and giving him seizures and stuff. And given the superstitious nature at the time, they probably attributed that to something supernatural, which we kind of see in the Salem witch trials. Those girls, they claim that it was all supernatural. However, given medicine at the time and the fact that we didn't understand mental illness or even general illness, some of that stuff could be attributed to that. And hell, maybe even to alleviate the old man from his suffering or to cash in on an inheritance, maybe the members of the family decided to end that misery and poisoned him and then spread the rumor or myth that the infamous witch did it. Now, to be honest, that is my own personal opinion of the sequence of events when you take out all the supernatural stuff and look at some of the human elements of the time. I am in no way trying to slander the name of that family or their descendants who still live in the area to this day, but I'm just saying that could be a possibility of what happened. And then the final hypothesis, which kind of reigns today, actually alludes to The Authenticated History of the Bell Witch by Martin Van Buren Ingram, who wrote it in 1890. The proponents of this hypothesis believe that he simply made it up. This man worked as a newspaper editor for various newspapers, and a lot of people believe that he just wanted to write an awesome ghost story. 
And the reason why this hypothesis reigns today is because a lot of the accounts he writes about are secondhand or thirdhand accounts. By this time, most of the people that had lived through this haunting, this incident, were dead or old and dying off. So there's not a lot that could be authenticated. However, for true believers, this is considered the Bible for anybody that wants to study the Bell Witch and the history and folklore behind it. But on that note, I think I am going to end it here. Once again, this is Mike with Urban Legends and Mythologies. And if you like this, I just encourage you to tell a friend, share it with someone, follow it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, wherever you may be listening to it. Follow it, share it, like it, give me feedback, donate, send me beer, help, send me upgraded equipment if you want. I could really use a dynamic mic for this project. Anything you guys want to do to support the show, I greatly appreciate it. Even just listening to it all the way through, that helps out a lot. And if anybody else has any opinions or suggestions on the future of the show or how to make it grow, reach out to me personally. The show's on Instagram now. I check that Instagram every day. Or find me on Facebook. I'm not that hard to find. And as always... Thank you for listening. I will see you in the next episode.